Please keep your Bibles open and let's pray as we look at God's Word together. Lord, our desire every time we open your Word is to hear from you. And so, Lord, we need your help to do that. We need your Spirit present with us, uh, opening our hearts and our ears to you. So, Lord, would you be with us and would you do just that? Would you show yourself? Would you engage our hearts? Would you change our hearts as we look into your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are continuing our short series on the topic, the subject of giving, of what we are calling gospel-fueled stewardship, giving to the Lord's work financially. And I want to start today with the same caveats that I started with last Sunday, just in case some of you weren't here. Uh, We're not talking about giving for a few weeks because that's just what we always talk about. This is not uh, necessarily a frequent subject for us from the pulpit. It it comes up in Scripture, and so therefore it does come up at times, but uh, we don't do a lot of uh, preaching about this subject nor am I talking about giving because we're in some sort of financial crisis as a church. We're not. Uh, it's okay. Uh, nor is it because we're in the middle of some major fundraiser. Um, the offering that we took today is something we do every year on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. It's not part of some big donor drive or campaign, and, and so we're going to preach about giving because we need to raise money. That's not the reason. Nor is it because I think some of you aren't giving enough or something like that. I don't know what anybody gives in the church, and I don't want to know. I'm talking, we're looking at giving for a few weeks for one simple reason. That's because giving to the Lord is an essential part of Christian discipleship, following Jesus as we saw last week, how we spend or invest our money on earth is ultimately a matter of worship, of worship. Where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. And so you cannot serve both God and money, and so how we spend our money on earth exposes the true master of our hearts. It's a matter of worship. And so we started by looking at that last week, but that also left us with several questions, right? Okay, so how much should we give? Or how do we allocate giving among many good causes? Or what should motivate that giving? Or in what manner should we give? And we're going to try and answer a few more of those this morning as we look together at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and the grace of giving the grace of giving, that when the grace of God in Jesus, when that grips our lives, that produces willful, joyful, generous giving as a result. Grace-fueled stewardship. Now, 2 Corinthians, um, the letter open before you, is obviously not the first letter Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth was not the easiest church that Paul had to deal with. Uh, They were fraught with problems, and one of the difficulties that that ancient church struggled with was this temptation to follow a group of false teachers whom Paul mockingly calls 
the super apostles. And he, he uses that jestful title because their ministry and their message were all about themselves, about their own power, their own performance, their own popularity. Whereas the message of the cross, of life through death, of grace through suffering, that message was weak to them, to the super apostles. And so they questioned Paul's legitimacy as an apostle, as a messenger of God, because of how weak and how inarticulate and how prone to suffering Paul was. He was a loser. You don't want to follow guys like that. And so, uh, and some in the Corinthian church were buying that. They were, they were beginning to question what Paul had been saying and doing, which wasn't ultimately a big deal in terms of rejecting Paul, but to reject Paul was to reject the gospel he was preaching, and that's what was at stake. And so the central aim of this second letter was, was for Paul to defend his apostolic authority and the message that he was preaching, that it really was the true gospel in Christ. And so he starts the letter by kind of talking about this conflict that they've been having, and, and then he makes a case for his apostolic ministry and the place of suffering in it, that suffering isn't a contradiction to the gospel, it's the very means by which God saves, if you look at Jesus and the cross. And then about halfway through the letter, he kind of shifts gears. It's a little bit of a punchy letter, but he, he shifts gears about halfway through, and he begins to take a little bit more of a positive uh, and encouraging or affirming tone. Chapter 6, he acknowledges those who've already repented, and, and he encourages them to keep going, to open their hearts to Paul uh, and, and to the apostles in earnestness and in love and, and to walk in obedience. And as he's kind of affirming and encouraging them to do that, the chief example or proof of that love, of that open heart to God and his gospel, is to finish the collection that they had started a year earlier, the collection for the saints. There is a, uh, the, the Christians in Jerusalem were facing incredible poverty and persecution, and the churches around the region had been taking up a collection to help them out. The proof of their love, that they're really opening their heart to the gospel, was to finish that collection and be ready for, to give it when Paul gets there. And that's what he's talking about when we get to chapters 8 and 9. At the end of his first letter, Paul encouraged the Corinthians. He said, now con concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So there's this collection that, that, that the churches have been taking, and that's the subject Paul gets to in chapters Eight and nine, and it's important to understand the context of what he's talking about here. Paul, when he talks about giving in these chapters, is not talking about regular giving to a local church. That happened, but that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about taking a tithe or anything like that. This is a one-time special gift to a different church that's in need. So it's kind of similar to the offering we just took up today that 
it would be to relieve the needs within the congregation. This is an offering that they were collecting to relieve the needs of the church in Jerusalem. So it's a very specific context, and we need to be clear about that. But even though it's a specific context, Paul's instructions here, I do think, give us one of the clearest windows into what ought to drive our giving as Christians, what ought to drive our giving as uh, financial giving to the Lord's work under the new covenant in Christ. And what ought to drive that giving, as we see here, is ultimately the grace of God, the grace of God. Our giving, as Paul describes it, is to be marked by grace from beginning to end. He uses the word grace ten times in these two chapters. In fact, he uses the word grace to describe the very act of giving itself. So if you look at chapter 8, verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He calls this collection they're taking the grace of God. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 4, they were begging us earnestly for the favor or specifically the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. To participate in that was grace. Uh, Verse 6, we urge Titus that as he'd started, so he should complete among you this act of grace, their role in the contribution. Again in verse 7, see that you excel in this act of grace also. He calls their giving grace. And then one more time in verse 19, talking about the brother who's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this grace that is being ministered by us. So giving is not just worship. According to Paul, giving is grace. That's how he characterizes it. So what does that mean? What does that actually look like? Uh, That's what we're going to look at this morning. And and what we're going to do, we're not going to walk through every single verse in this text. Rather, what we're going to do is look at three things. The motivation for our giving, the manner of our giving, how we do it, and then the source and goal of our giving, each of which is dominated by grace. And we're going to define what we mean by grace as we look at the first point, which is the motivation of giving. Why give generously? Why give generously? Where does that come from? Well, as Paul instructs the the Corinthian church to follow the example of the churches of Macedonia, Corinth was the capital of Achaia, and Macedonia was right on top of that. Uh, As Paul encourages them to follow the example of those churches and complete this act of grace, this giving, he anchors his instruction to give in their own experience of God's grace. Look at verse 9. He says, complete your act of grace, excel in this act of grace, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Why give graciously to God? Because he has dealt 
graciously with us through his son. He has given us not just something that we don't deserve, he's given us the opposite of what we actually deserve at great cost to self. And, and that's what we mean by the word grace. That's how Paul uses it. Look at how he describes it here in verse 8. He says, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So grace is costly. It, it's not free. It cost Jesus everything. And he's not talking about money here. He's talking about how Jesus set aside his glory in heaven to humble himself and step into his own creation to live for us the life that we wouldn't live and couldn't live, a life of perfect fellowship and faithfulness with God, and then to take on himself all of our sin and all of our weakness, bearing the very wrath of God in our place through his death on the cross. So all the glorious riches of heaven traded in for the most shameful, excruciating death on earth. Grace is costly. It cost Jesus everything, and he did it for us. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He's given us everything. And again, that's spiritually speaking. So Jesus lost everything in order to give us everything. That's grace. That's grace. He took the punishment we deserve so that we might get the reward he earned. It's costly. It's not cheap. But it's freely given. It's freely given. It's, it's freely given and freely received. And so even though it costs Jesus everything, it costs us nothing. It's offered to us freely by faith. So we can't earn it. And we can't pay it back. It's ours for free through faith in Jesus. God in Jesus gives us something wonderful, even though we actually deserve something terrible. And he's able to do that because Jesus took the terrible in our place. That's grace. And when you experience that kind of grace... When you realize how horrible your sin is and how much you actually deserve his holy justice and yet how merciful God is, how unspeakably loving he is for Jesus to, to take the place of his enemies and to willingly give himself. When you experience that kind of grace, you can't help but respond in kind to give graciously as you have received graciously. The joy of salvation will allow no other course. When you think of, the, uh, of Charles Dickens' classic, uh, A Christmas Carol, that's a parable of grace. This greedy, miserly man who is rotten toward everyone is allowed to see what he's forsaken from his past, what he's neglecting in the present, and where he's going in the future, and upon realizing that he's given another chance, he's given something wonderful, even though he deserves something terrible, what's he do? 
He responds in kind, with grace. Grace that expresses itself in generous giving. Not because he owes a debt to society, but because he's so happy for the grace he's received. Or you could just look at the example of the Macedonians that Paul points to at the beginning of chapter 8. You know, verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now look at how he describes their giving, the circumstances they're giving. A severe test of affliction plus abundant joy, plus a wealth of generosity, excuse me, affliction plus joy plus extreme poverty equals a wealth of generosity. Now, I don't know about you, but that math doesn't work in my brain, right? Those things should not add up together. I mean, severe affliction and extreme poverty don't typically add up to a wealth of generosity. Those are negative factors. But then there's this positive factor in the middle, this abundance of joy. And that abundant joy is so much stronger than severe affliction and extreme poverty that it doesn't just cancel those out, it actually overflows into a wealth of generosity. And so where does that abundant joy come from? What is that abundant joy in? It's from their experience of God's grace. Scott Haifman writes, for, for Paul, the basis of giving to others is not what they have done or will do, but what God has already done for us in Christ. The foundation of giving is God's grace. Gracious giving is motivated by our own experience of grace. And so, Think about your own life. Think about your own life. How real is the grace of God to you? How real? And I'm not talking about what you believe on paper. I'm talking about how you actually operate. How do you actually relate with God? How necessary is God's grace to your relationship? Do you view your relationship with God like you're doing him a favor? You know, like spending time with an elderly aunt who lives in town and you pop in every couple of weeks because it's a nice thing to do. Is that how we view our God? Or, or do we view our relationship with God more like dealing with a customer service agent that you're trying to convince to just do their job? Look, I, I paid the bill already. Will you please just fix the service? Or do you see your relationship with God as a humble privilege? Like a, a young man whose carelessness resulted in a car accident and the death of his friend only to be forgiven and accepted into his friend's family. That's grace. I mean, can we sing the line from the great hymn, How Great Thou Art? The third stanza, and when I think 
that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. How necessary is grace in your life? It's everything. It is everything in a relationship with God. And when you experience that kind of grace, to be given so much when we deserve the complete opposite, that changes you. You don't walk away from that the same. And you can't help but respond in kind to give as we've received. And so gracious giving, the motivation of our giving, is our own experience of God's grace. But what should that giving actually look like? How do we give? That's the second thing that I want to look at here, the manner of our giving. As Paul calls on this church in Corinth to complete their contribution uh, to this relief effort, he doesn't just tell them why to do it, he tells them how to do it as well. And we see four characteristics of giving in his instructions. Our grace-fueled giving should be proportionate, willful, joyful, and generous. Proportionate, willful, joyful, and generous. So what do we mean by proportionate? It means that we give according to what we have, not according to what we don't have. Those are Paul's instructions in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. So now finish, it doing, finish doing it as well, this gift, so that your readiness in desiring to give may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So whenever giving comes up, probably the first question we always are asking, at least ourselves, is, okay, how much? That's our first question, how much? And what's interesting is that nowhere in the New Testament is that question answered in terms of any percentage or amount. Now, under the Old Covenant, Israel was, had a tithe system. They were to give a tenth of their produce and livestock to the Lord. And, and a lot of Christians will apply that today as a model or a baseline, and that's fine as a principle, but we can't push it too far because the New Testament simply doesn't say that. It's not one of the laws that, of Israel that's reiterated under the New Covenant. As we're going to see, the New Testament doesn't focus on the amount, it focuses on the heart of the giver. The heart of the giver. The only thing we can say about amount is that we give according to what we have, not according to what we don't have. Which means the more you have, the more you should give. The less you have, the less you're going to be able to give. Though God may move you to give even beyond your means, as he did with the churches of Macedonia. But everyone should give. Everyone should give. So it's not as though those who have a lot give and those who don't have much don't. You give according to what you have. Everyone should give. But we give it proportionately. According to what we have, not according to what we don't have. As, as Paul says in chapter 9, verse 7, 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. What, when you consider the grace of God, what is God calling you to give? He's not asking about amounts and percentages. He's asking about our heart in response to his grace. So, proportionate giving. Second, willful giving. We give willfully. We give out of a genuine desire. A genuine desire. Not guilt. Not guilt. Not duty. Or under compulsion or, or coercion. You shouldn't be shamed into giving. Uh, if you look at chapter 8, 10, and 11, Paul acknowledges their desire to give. This is something they want to do. And so what he's saying is, great, now complete it. Do it. You, the desire is there. Finish the gift. And in chapter 9, he, he encourages them to do that again. Partly, uh, he wants the gift to be ready for when he gets there. Partly because he's been bragging on their generosity, and he doesn't want them or him to kind of look silly. Um, but also because he wants to ensure that it is a willing gift. If you look at chapter 9, verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift that you promised, that it may be ready as a willing gift and not an exaction. This is not a tax. When you, put an offering, when you give an offering to the Lord, you're not paying your dues for membership in a club or anything like that. It is a willing gift to the Lord. Again, verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must, be, must give as he is decided in, in his heart, not under compulsion. Not under compulsion or coercion. So, willing giving. Third, joyful giving. Gospel-fueled giving is joyful. And that gets back to what we were talking about earlier uh, with the, the abundant joy of the Macedonians overflowing in this wealth of generosity. Because it's possible to give willfully uh, and out of what you have, but to do it grudgingly, Right? Nobody's putting a gun to my head. Nobody's forcing me to put a check in, in, in the plate or whatever, but I'd much rather spend that on something else. Like, we can give grudgingly. Um, you know, you think again of, of Scrooge at the beginning of his story. That's not the kind of heart God's looking for in those who give. Rather, again, the churches of Macedonia, they begged Paul for the grace of sharing in the relief of the saints. It's almost as if Paul was, a, was afraid to even let them participate because their poverty was so extreme. And they're like, no, 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 no. Don't deny us this. We want to contribute. They begged him for the grace. It was a willing gift given out of an abundance of joy. Once again, chapter 9, verse 7. Each, mo- each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, a joyful giver. We give with joy fueled by God's grace. And then finally, in terms of how we give, God's people should give generously, bountifully, just as God has been generous to us in Christ. There are four words that form a kind of bracket or bookend around these two chapters here. They appear at the beginning and at the end. They're grace, overflow, 
generosity and give or gift. The chapter starts on that and ends on that. And you could pretty much then summarize what these two chapters tell us by those four words. Grace overflows in us, resulting in generous giving. That's the point. And, and so, what counts as generous? What counts as generous? Uh, again, Paul doesn't give us an amount. Rather, as one author puts it, he, he leaves the amount of their giving up to the Corinthians, convinced that as a new creation in Christ, the quantity of their giving will match the quality of their changed hearts. The quantity of their giving will match the quality of their changed hearts. For the Macedonians, that meant giving beyond their means. For the Corinthians, it meant excelling or abounding, overflowing in this act of grace. As, as Scott Haifman explains, the point here is not how much one gives, but that one gives as freely as possible. That's generosity. Um, you think about it this way. Giving generously is what we do when we love someone. It's what we do when we love someone. It's amazing. When our kids have a birthday, we always set like a budget for their gift, and then we always end up breaking that budget for some reason. Like, you're just trying, and, and, and you know, there's maybe many reasons for that, but the biggest one that drives us to push that is we just want to give more. We want to give as freely as we can, and so if it means we have to say no to this over here so we can say yes to this, our love compels us to do that. And that's the drive here. Paul calls this opportunity a chance for them to prove their love in chapter 8, verses 8 and 24. Generosity comes from love. And he sums that call to generosity up in chapter 9, verse 6. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So for the last two summers, I've, um, we've had these patches in our yard where I needed to plant grass seed. And both years, I've sowed sparingly because that stuff's expensive. And so I'm like doling out just the amount needed here and here and instead of scattering it liberally, I'm doling it out and giving no more than necessary for each patch, and so that at the end I have some extra, right? Which I then put in the shed and it rots over the winter. <laughs> That's what happens. Two years in a row. And you can imagine what those patches look like at the end of the summer. A little bit of grass and a whole lot of weeds that have just moved in and taken over. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully or as a matter of blessing will also reap bountifully as a matter of blessing. And the point here is not reaping material blessings. This is not give so that you can get. That's the lie of the prosperity gospel. And it simply cannot be squared with Scripture especially 2 Corinthians, because this whole book is about how God's grace shows itself through our weakness, through our suffering, through our poverty. So that's not what he's talking about here. It's a spiritual matter. God promises to provide for his children, but that provision doesn't mean we will avoid suffering or hardship. What it means is that we'll never be without Christ in the midst of that suffering or hardship. 
But you won't know that. You won't taste or enjoy that if you're too busy holding on to the possessions that you have. Safely doling out just enough to make sure we've got some left over so that it can rot. Jesus didn't shed his blood sparingly. When he was on the cross, he wasn't measuring out just the right amount. He gave all of it. He gave his whole life. That's grace. And so the grace that we experience in Christ motivates us to reflect that grace in how we give proportionately, willfully, joyfully, and generously. But how is that possible? I mean, there's motivation, there's manner, but when it comes down to it, that's still hard, right? How do I, have, how do I let go of my stuff and actually follow the grace in my heart? That brings us to our final point, the source and goal of giving from grace to grace. And, and after that key verse that we kept coming back to, chapter 9, verse 7, Paul says this, each one must give as he's decided in his heart. That's the key verse we keep coming back to, not reluctantly or com- under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Right after that, Paul tells us how that's possible and what it's all for, what it actually accomplishes. And as you might guess, the answer to both of those questions, how is it possible and what's it for? The answer is grace. Chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may be abound in every good work. So how is generous, joyful giving possible? It's the same reason that anything we do in following God is possible. It's his grace. It's not just the motivation, it's the very power to be able to give. And he anchors that point in in Psalm 112, and then look at what he says in verse 10. This is chapter 9, verse 10. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The only way this kind of joyful, generous giving is possible is because God is the one who gives us the grace to do it. He's the one who enriches us in every way so that we can be generous in every way, including financial giving. It all comes from his hand anyway. And when we do that, notice again the verse, end of verse 11. When we give generously like that, the result is thanksgiving to God. So generous giving fueled by the gospel results in thanksgiving and glory to God. And the word that Paul uses twice in our passage to describe that thanksgiving is, wait for it, grace. That's the word he uses. When he says, thanks be to God in 8.16 and in 9.15, that word thanks is the same word he's been using throughout the chapter. It's grace. Grace be to God. So he summarizes the goal of what their giving accomplishes for the ministry of this service. It's not just supplying the needs for the saints. Yes, there's a horizontal result. God's people are helped. But ultimately, it's overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. 
because by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of the submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. While they long and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. It all comes from and points back to God's grace. Kent Hughes says it well. He says, giving is a matter of grace from beginning to end. We're motivated by grace. We reflect grace in how we give. We depend on grace to do it. And we aim for the grace that wells up in thanksgiving to God. It's all of grace. And so last week I gave two applications. uh, To take a fresh look at Jesus and his worthiness and to take a fresh look at how you actually spend your money and see how those things line up. Uh, This morning I'm going to give you two applications as well. First, in light of the gospel of God's grace, ask yourself, what do I want to give? What do I want to give? Not selfishly, on the basis of the gospel, What am I deciding in my heart with respect to willful, joyful, generous giving? What do I want to give? Not what should I, or what what do I think others expect me to? What do I want to give in light of the gospel? That's the first question. And then the second application is to prepare yourself to give that. To prepare yourself to give that. What do I need to do to be ready so that my desire can be matched by my action, by completing the gift out of what I have. And that may mean that I need to change some of my habits or organize some things differently, but what do I need to do to be ready to give what I want to give in light of the gospel of God's grace? That's the application. Because when the grace of God in Jesus grips our lives, that produces a willful, joyful, generous giving. We'll talk a little bit more about what that giving is for next week when we look at Philippians 4 and the partnership and how we allocate that for the sake of the gospel. But what do I want to give in light of the gospel? And then ask God to help you give it. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, we acknowledge every time money comes up, we feel vulnerable. We feel exposed, and and there's a reason for that, because where our treasure is, that's where our hearts are. So Lord, would you help us to see Jesus as the greatest treasure, Uh, because that's true. Lord, help us to treasure you above all things, and may that treasuring of Christ overflow in all parts of our lives, God, how we speak, how we live, how we love, and also how we give. In Jesus' name, amen.